So allow me then to read our scripture today from the gospel according to John, the first chapter, if I can turn to it in my bulletin, beginning at the 29th verse, hear the word of God. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom this, you see the spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray, O oh Lord, that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ, where we pray this in his name. Amen. <clears throat> moons and moons ago, when I was a pastor up in New Jersey and still involved with student ministry, I had read in the newspaper that Billy Graham was coming to New York City. It was one of his New York City crusades. The, the church I served was a bedroom community to New York, and I, I got the idea that I would take a couple of our youth leaders to attend one of the nights of the crusade, which I did. Now, these kids already love Jesus, but I thought it might be interesting for them to see this important leader of the 20th century American Christianity. So we went and we got a seat in the top tier of what was then Brennan Burn Arena, and, and we worshipped and we listened to Billy Graham and we heard him give his altar call and his invitation for people to come forward and the buses would wait and George Beverly Shea would lead us in singing just as I am. Now, none of this is very Presbyterian, of course, so I wasn't sure what these two high school kids were going to make of all this. So from high up on our perch, we watched as hundreds and hundreds of people left their seats and made their ways up the aisle to give their lives to Jesus. And at one point, I looked over at these two high school kids, and both of them had tears streaming down their cheeks. I'm not sure why I was surprised, but I was. Later in the car ride home, I asked them what they were thinking, what they were feeling as they were watching all this. And they both said in their own ways that when the people got out of their seats and started their parade up to the stage, that they felt like 
Jesus was there. They felt like Jesus was in the arena. They couldn't see Jesus, but they knew he was there. One of those two went on to become a Presbyterian minister. One of the great blockbuster movies of the 20th century was a movie called Ben-Hur. Anyone see Ben-Hur? Oh, yeah, we all belie our age, don't we? <laughs> Ben-Hur's subtitle is A Tale of the Christ. It follows the life of Judah Ben-Hur as it parallels this ministry of Jesus. And Judah Ben-Hur and his family are persecuted by the Romans. And in the midst of his imprisonment and sale into slavery, Judah's life intersects with this rabbi Jesus. But, but the strange thing about the movie is, is that you never see when Jesus appears, you never see Jesus' face. The only thing you see is what Jesus does. You see him from behind teaching the crowds. You see him bent beneath the cross he's trying to carry. You see him nailed to the same cross and hung. And, and early in the movie, when he first appears, you see him ladling a cup of cool water and giving it to Judah when he's at the point, when Judah is at the point of giving up. You don't see Jesus' face. You just see his hands. You only see the faces only of those who see Jesus' face. And like my high school friends, you see Jesus, but you don't see him. You only see what he does in and for and through people. In our text this morning, we read of John's account of the ministry of John the Baptist and his attempt to introduce people to Jesus. John the Baptist has the benefit of being a contemporary of Jesus. So when he seeks to introduce his disciples to Jesus, he's actually able to point to the flesh and blood Jesus and send them to him face to face. And they, in turn, have this face to face encounter with Jesus. It's hard to imagine what that would have been like, this face to face with Jesus. We can't really imagine that, I suppose. And, and that's what makes what the directors and producers of Ben-Hur so brilliant that when they introduced us to Jesus, the only way we can be introduced to Jesus today is not face to face, but only in what Jesus does in and through and for his people. We've heard a hundred times the story of the group of salesmen finishing their meeting in Chicago on a Friday afternoon and all of them are late for their planes out of O'Hare and madly they dash through the terminal to get to their gates and one of them inadvertently knocks into a table where a young blind girl is selling apples. This was long before they had security at airports and the table crashes and the apples fall and, and they roll under the feet of the other rushing travelers and the salesmen though keep running for their planes because they don't want to be late getting home except one who finally has the pang of conscience and turns and runs back to the poor blind girl to pick up the mess that they had made. And on his hands and knees, he bends picking up the apples one by one, taking them back to the table of the blind girl. And when, they, when he notices she's blind, and when he notices that the apples are bruised and dirty, he gives her the amount he imagines all of them would be worth if, he had, if she had sold them. And he hands to her a water bills and begins to turn around. And, he turn, and, and as he turns, he hears the blind girl say, Mr., Mr., are you Jesus? Mr., are you Jesus? To live 20 centuries removed from the flesh and blood Jesus, I suppose, means we're all left to wonder 
What are we supposed to do ourselves to introduce people to Jesus? A few of us see ourselves as the evangelist types. Presbyterians have never been good at collaring people to get them to accept Jesus. We've never been very good at, you know, preaching on street corners. It's like the old riddle, you know, what do you get when you cross a Jehovah's Witness with a Presbyterian? You get a guy on your doorstep who doesn't know what to say. <laughs> we Presbyterians could probably do a little bit better at figuring out what to say in our polite little way. But the mission has always been since the days of John the Baptist to point people to Jesus, to demonstrate the power and presence of Jesus in the world, to, to leave an unmistakable impression that Jesus is here, maybe even to provoke some to say, hey, are, are you Jesus? It makes me think of when I was young and became the target of an elementary school bully. Not sure why he picked on me, as burly as I am, but he did. I did everything I could to avoid him, but bullies are never happy unless they're bullying. So one day he found me walking home from school, and it was winter, and there was a good bit of snow on the ground. And I ran, I ran, and I ran, but he caught me, and he pulled me into the snow, and he planted my face five inches into the snow and just held me there. I tried to roll free, but he had a good grip, and he just held me in that snow. And then all of a sudden he let go. And I, and I raised my head, and I rolled over, and there was this fifth-grade boy dragging the bully away, just dragging him away. And describing to him, while he was dragging him, the consequences of what might happen if he ever did that again. He asked if I was all right and then continued on. I remember that moment like it was yesterday. This unnamed boy who didn't have to do that. It takes a certain amount of caring, doesn't it? And it takes a certain amount of courage to do that. I suppose caring and courage converged in that fifth grade boy. Mister, are you Jesus? The world can stand more people pulling the bullies away. Bob Easterbrook is a name that is familiar, I suspect, to none of us. Bob Easterbrook was a professional baseball player, but one that none of us had probably read about. He never made it to the majors, never made it to the big time, got as only as far as the minor leagues, and even there he bounced from team to team for about 10 years, never set the world on fire. So there would be no reason for you or I to remember the name of Bob Easterbrook unless you realize that Bob Easterbrook happened to be on a minor league team called the Trenton Thunder from Trenton, New Jersey, the day when a young African-American received his first contract to play professional baseball and joined the team one Willie Mays, the first African-American to join not only the Trenton Thunder, but the entire Class B Interstate League. So Bob Easterbrook was on the team when Willie Mays began his professional career. So what? Well, the so what came the evening of Willie Mays' first day of professional baseball when they were on the road in Hagerstown, Maryland, when after the game, the team bus drove to the other side of town and deposited Willie Mays to stay alone in the hotel across the tracks 
because it was forbidden for African Americans to lodge in hotels in that town. So the so what came that evening when the young man Willie Mays laid alone in his hotel room far away not only from his team but from his home and a knock came to the window of his hotel room. The so what came in the knock of one Bob Easterbrook. Bob Easterbrook along with two others of the team had walked across town and knocked on the window of Willie Mays Hotel and when he opened the door he heard Bob Easterbrook say no member of our team stays alone. And Bob Easterbrook and his two companions slept on the floor of young Willie Mays hotel room the first night of his professional baseball career. The next day the manager of the Thunder inserted Willie Mays into the outfield for the first time in place of Bob Easterbrook. Caring, encourage, converge. Mr. Easterbrook, are you Jesus? Taylor Branch in his history reminds us of the story of the four black college students and their white professor who got tired of the, the delay in the civil rights era in Jackson, Mississippi and marched themselves into the Woolworths downtown, a store which did not permit black folks at lunch counters and they took their place at the lunch counter to confront the bully of racism and the bully showed up in the mob of white folk who took turns slathering the demonstrators with ketchup and mustard and sugar. Later it was spray paint and then beatings and then salt poured into the wounds left by the beatings. The pictures picked, pricked the conscience of the nation and when seeing the caring and the courage of these young people, some asked, are you Jesus? It seems in this 21st century world of ours, if we're going to seriously entertain the mission of John the Baptist, this mission to introduce people to Jesus, it may have less to do with what we say and more with what we do. Because in the end, we know, the New Testament tells us, we know that Jesus is love enfleshed. And the apostle tells us, for no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We become the face of Jesus and the face of a tutor or the hands of a food pantry volunteer or the voice of a Wilkinson reader or the shoulders of hurricane relief workers, excuse me, are you Jesus? Which may have been what millions of young women saw when a 14-year-old Pakistani woman, Malala Yousafzai, began blogging about how poorly women in her culture were treated and how they were denied their rights to a basic education and her voice raised the voices of others and her caring and courage put her face to face with an assassin whose bullet in her face nearly took her life. But she pressed on and her unwillingness to stand down after her attack brought her to the UN to speak and then to the awarding of the Nobel Peace Prize at the age of 17, which has empowered women from around the world to demand an education so they can live out their God-given mission and purpose. Caring and courage converge. Young lady, are you Jesus? 
It is, of course, what we see in this faceless rabbi walking the trails of Palestine, the convergence of caring and courage, taking the risk to touch the leper, to eat with the tax collector, to, to talk to the Samaritan woman, to bend to the prostitute, to walk, to wash the dirty feet of the disciples, yes, even to endure the cross. It's where people will always see Jesus. And every act of caring and courage from a Woolworths counter to an elementary playground, caring enough to see the bullies and courageous enough to do something about them, all in the name of the one who calls us down the aisle and brings teenagers to tears.